Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm really delighted to welcome Christina Pagel, mathematician and professor of operational research at University College London. Christina is the first female director of the Clinical Operational Research Unit at UCL, an honorary researcher at Great Ormond Street Hospital, and has been one of the most prominent scientists in the media during the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, she had 1,500 Twitter followers. She now has nearly 150,000. In this podcast, she talks about what it's like to be suddenly in the media, the joys and perils of being a boss, and why she can't stop doing degrees. Well, welcome to The Art of Work. This is my first ever interview with a Christina, let alone an interview (laughs) with a Christina P, which makes it a particular pleasure. Um, So we're speaking on the day when the parliamentary report has called the country's COVID response one of the worst public health failures in the UK history. What's your response to this? Well, I mean, it's quite a it's quite a damning report. I think, you know, coming from two committees whose chairs are conservative, I think adds a bit more weight as well to it. Um, I mean, a lot of it around the transparency side of it is really good to hear them calling that out. And that's actually why Independence Age was first formed back in the spring of 2020, because everything was so secret. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just it's just sad. It's just sad to look back and and realise, you know, what they call this kind of fatalistic assumption that we couldn't do anything mm. set us up to fail you know we started with that attitude and of course we now know and it was coming clear at the time that it wasn't inevitable um and you know we've got over 150,000 deaths to show for it you know yeah can you tell me a bit more about how independent independent sage you know it kind of sprung up it apparently sprung up but obviously it didn't just spring up what what how did that come about and what exactly has it done during the pandemic so it it came about precisely because of the kind of lack of transparency that's talked about in the report so you know when the decision was made to kind of form an independent group of experts um convened by sir david king who was the ex-chief scientific advisor um it was in april 2020 and at that point the membership of sage was secret and there were absolutely no minutes or notes or reports so we had no idea what the science advice was to the government mm. um, and it was also clear that the approach that the UK had taken was quite different to many other countries and it felt like you know we need to kind of understand what the possible options are um, how we got to where we were and that's kind of where independence age came in and, and part of um when the group was convened, you know, there was a conscious effort to include a lot of public health experts, which, which we now know were not on SAGE. Because I think the day we've had our first meeting in May 2020, they published the membership of of SAGE, and there really weren't many public health or any public health experts on there um, at all. And since then, I think we've, you know, we've released probably over 50 reports. Um, We have our weekly briefings every Friday, directly to the public and to journalists kind of going through the latest data explaining what's happening not just in the UK but also around the world um we'll often focus on a particular topic whether it's kind of um test and trace or schools um inequalities mental health impacts kind of trying to unpick different bits of the pandemic and really we actually use a lot of the sage reports that are now published in the sage modeling to inform that. So like Sage might say, like they just did in September, oh, relatively um, minor extra protections might help keep down a winter surge. And then we'll say, okay, this is what Sage says, let's do that. And this is how we think you should do that. So it's kind of going one step further. It's firstly communicating what Sage is saying, and then actually saying, well, this is how that would translate into policy. Mm. So there's been all your input into Independent Sage, but then also your own input as an independent Christina on Twitter and on TV and radio and very, very widely. You've continued to hold the government and associated bodies 
to account throughout this whole period. Have you made any enemies you care about? And has this taken any kind of emotional toll? Um, yes, <laughs> to both questions. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly you get a lot of um, abuse now. I mean, you know, you know, when the pandemic started on Twitter, I have maybe I don't know fifteen hundred followers, oh, and I've really, now got, really, yeah, <gasps> and I've now got one hundred forty-five thousand, and and it's just a completely different world. Um, and that's kind of taken some getting used to. Um, and some people who already had a lot of followers gave me some hints and were like, you know, don't get involved in online arguments. Um, and the kind of some hints about mute settings so that you can try and weed out the bots and the trolls. And, that's, and that made a big difference. Just saying don't read the comments makes quite a big difference. Although obviously that also means you're much less responsive to people. Um, but... I think so. And, and then I also get angry emails from people. And and a lot of the time I kind of, I mean, it's never nice to get an angry email, but at the same time, I kind of understand that anger, particularly back during lockdowns, which had such a negative effect on so many people. I can't blame people for being angry. I felt like that anger was misdirected, mm-hmm. but I couldn't necessarily blame them for that anger. Um, and sometimes they were just, abusive and and threatening and then I just delete them or report them but what's been harder over the last six months is I think you know there's been much more division in science and there are some quite prominent science academics who basically delight in having a pop at independence age and, and me in particular and and that and that's difficult because they're your peers mm. you know and they have a lot of standing in social media, but also they're often on TV and in newspapers. And, and it's kind of hard to take sometimes and, and you can't respond. I mean, that, that's the difficulty. If you do respond, it just gets worse. Mm. And particularly if you do have more followers, very quickly you get told you're, you know, you're causing a pylon or something. And I'm very, very conscious of that. So I, I just tend to not do that because I don't, I don't want that to happen. Um, but then it means you can't really defend yourself. So you're just yeah. left having to take it. And, and there's absolutely no doubt watching it over the last year that women get it worse than men and women of color get it worse than white women. Yeah. yeah. And actually social scientists get it worse than, than quantitative scientists. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, I've seen that in those, those kind of impacts play out over the last 18 months. And sometimes it's, it's incredibly depressing mm. to watch the tone that people respond to you at and, and the lack of respect yeah. in a way that they would never dream of responding to a white man. Yeah. It's, it, and and that, that's really been obvious to me. And, ha- ha- well, two parts to this. How, do you, how have you managed that emotionally? And the other thing I want to ask you in terms of emotional management is about, is about the government's response to the pandemic. I mean, I'm, you know, nobody sitting in a back room unable to do anything about it, but I have felt such a sense of impotent rage for since March last year actually since late late February last year I remember um I was in the green room at Sky and I was on with someone who I won't name who was in the was and I think has remained in the it's a lot of fuss about nothing uh faction um although later of course he told me he was really worried about his mother and things like that but these people never say that on air and I ended up howling in the green room because um because I realized we weren't going to have a lockdown and I thought well I'm going to you know I'm going to have to lock myself away because I've had a lot of illness in my life and I don't want to get this thing and I have been able to do apart from you know kind of speaking out a little bit on the sky or twitter I can do nothing 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 to affect the government's uh, response you independent sage obviously you know you can do something as a public figure but even so it's a heavy emotional price how have you managed that well part of it is 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 an outlet for impotent rage I yes. mean um in that you know me personally I am pow- I have no policy making power but as the year went on and I got more followers on Twitter a lot of those followers are journalists and, and I make a lot of effort, and I still do, to write 
long and informative threads mm. about things that I consider important. And it might be highlighting vaccine inequalities. It might be highlighting pressures on the NHS or whatever. And often that does get picked up. And that's a way of me saying, these things matter. Yes. <laughs> and trying to get that out more broadly. Um, and sometimes it makes a difference. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, how would you, how do you ever know, you know, whether you were the person that did something or not? Mm. Um, you know, look like all kinds of things like the rise of alpha in December, the rise of Delta in April, um, the pressure in January when they see all of those things, but speaking out is like, that's all I can do. I guess that's how I see it. That, mm. That, it, that, that there's so few scientists speaking out. I mean, it may seem odd, you know, that obviously it feels like there's scientists on all the time, but actually a lot of people on SAGE feel unable to speak out. A lot of people in the NHS felt unable to speak out. And sometimes they get in touch with me and um, particularly you know, people in the NHS. And then I feel like that's my job. And it's my duty to go out there and explain to people this is what's happening. Mm. Um, and, and that also helps in that I feel like I have some measure of control over the situation. And obviously I don't have control of the situation, but that it's a way for me to deal with that kind of feeling of impotence is that yeah. at least I can speak out. And and just, you know, I can't change the narrative, but I can at least remind people that there's a different one. Yes. I think that that's that's kind of what I can do um and in terms of you know like other scientists and stuff I mean it is, it is hard and I kind of was thinking oh it doesn't really affect me and then my husband said to me you know that's what you that's all you talk about is who's being horrible to you on Twitter Aww. and and I was like huh you know that's not great and you realize you're thinking about it oh, late yeah. at night like oh. why did they say that and why are they thinking that you know um and then I just blocked a lot of them and it made my life better immediately <laughs> you know I mean honestly like that even though um, you get the inevitable, oh, fantastic, she's blocked me, she doesn't really care about science. It's actually just, you know, I think someone once said, you know, you you have a right to walk away from someone who crosses the street to shout at you. Yes. And that's really what it is. Yes. And and that has made a big difference. Yeah. And I just don't see it now. And I'm sure there are people being, sometimes I hear people say to me, oh, I saw X, Y, Z being horrible. I was like, I didn't see it. And you know what? I don't want to know. Mm. <laughs> oh, that sounds that's a very, very wise approach. It sounds as though there is at least some satisfaction in feeling that you are able to do something. I think many of us have felt uh, not just impotent, but also watching, um, hearing about and knowing doctors and nurses and, and, and people who really are key workers. You know, I think many of us have felt over the last... 18 months or so quite redundant as, as kind of members of society in a way so I suppose to have a sense of of purpose is is an important thing and makes makes a difference yeah and I mean it, it's been weird because it's not been my no I still have my day job that there's also always this kind of sense of, of what am I what is my role here when does it end, you know? And I guess that is the question now that we're asking ourselves, like, when does it end? When does, when do I stop? Um, and then what happens, <laughs> you know, because, because it has, it does change you as an experience, you know, before May, 2020, I didn't have any media experience. You know? Really? Really? None at all? Yeah. Really? None, no, none. And then I went on Sky in June and that was the first time I ever did TV and, and then it kind of went on from there and you know, I kind of learned on the job and I, you know, I just didn't, yeah, I had no idea how any of it worked. And then you, re and then, you know, so much of my time now is spent up talking to journalists or writing an article or commenting. And, and I, and I always think, you know, I'm not getting paid to, to do that. Am, am I neglecting my actual job to do this? But then I think, well, it's, it matters. Like, I think it matters that, that people have access to information. And because of the weekly briefings that I do at Indie Sage, I do actually know the numbers really well because I have to. It's, it's literally my job to, well, on Indie Sage to do that. So, so if I have that information, I feel like I have a duty to share it with people. Um, but it has kind of mean that now I don't quite know what I am anymore. 
quite it's going to be quite weird you know at the, when it's over and then I'm like well, okay well I think renaissance renaissance woman and all-round spokesperson for uh, science, reason, the enlightenment, etc., might be part of the future job description. Um, I wanted to ask you. Uh, well, first of all, I was going to ask you. I mean, you're, you're clearly a very natural communicator, um, and I remember in that incredibly moving thread that you posted on New Year's Day this year about your brother. And I wanted to ask you about that later, but you have a kind of exchange about you you meeting for lunch and you were preparing a talk and he was saying oh come out for lunch and you were saying no 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 it's work and he said oh but you're so brilliant at this stuff and he and you saying well you know it doesn't just happen kind of thing I'm I'm good at it because I work at it but before all the tv stuff how much work did you put into developing your communication skills because it's a big it's kind of I'm not sure how it's much it's part actually part of your job at UCL or not well I mean, part of any academic's job is to give academic talks. So yes. everyone does that. And you always do like a few a year. And then I've always, since, you know, 2005, regularly given talks to schools because I'm really, really matters to me that firstly, people do science and secondly, that particularly girls consider science. Um, so I've always done that. And then um, a few years ago in 2015, 16, I developed... Um, a website about outcomes in congenital heart surgery for kids, which is one of my main areas of work in normal life, um, where we work directly with parents and families of children to kind of make sure that what we were doing was explainable. And that really did completely change my views on communication because I just realised quite how much jargon we use, how much we take for granted, how, you know, the kind of level of detail you need. Um, and, And I think that, And then I spent a year in America on a fellowship doing health policy where I ended up talking to a lot of policymakers who weren't quantitative background. And again, I had to adapt to that. So although at the time I wasn't really thinking about, oh, I'm improving my communication skills. Looking at it now, I realized that that is exactly what I was doing, that I was learning how to communicate. Um, And then I think the kind of the, like people sometimes have said to me, oh, you know, you're quite blunt. And I don't think I am at all. But I do think there is a certain kind of German <laughs> directness that's in there. Whereas, you know, if people ask me what I think about something, then I will say what I think about something. Um, and I and I hate it when people kind of don't answer a question. I'm like, well, you know, I'll answer it. <laughs> you may not like the answer. Yeah, not very, not very English. I mean, I have slightly the same with my S- Swedish mother. I yeah. think, I think you know, Northern Europeans tend to be a bit more Definitely direct, don't European they? Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the parliamentary report was quite damning of the scientists as well, although in particular some scientists, and you know, I think Chris Whitty and Patrick Valence would have to be the kind of key people there. As someone who's been a very passionate advocate for the sciences and STEM. How does it feel to you to hear scientists criticised in that way? Um, I think what you see there is a failure of interdisciplinarity. Mm. And that's something as well that I think, like my area of work, which is operational research, and that's kind of a, a branch of applied mathematics, that's all about working with lots of different people using useful things from lots of different disciplines that you come away and you you appreciate the narrowness of your own point of view and that's where I think we failed you know we have and we still do have some of the best epidemiological modelers in the world but you know if they're being told oh well you can't model a lockdown because there's no way the British people would accept it or they don't understand for instance um about care homes and how the people who work in care homes are typically um, from deprived communities and do agency work and can't afford to isolate and all of this stuff you build in assumptions and constraints into the options that you're considering without even really realizing that you're doing it Um, and and I think that whole thing kind of forgets that scientists are people 
and that we come with our own experiences and our own assumptions about things. And, and that can go horribly wrong. And that's where if you have, a, the more disciplines you have working together, mm. the less likely that is to happen. And that's where I think you really see the dearth in, in public health, but not just public health, also the international expertise. So some of the people, um, like on Independence Stage, particularly Martin McKee, who's a professor um, of public health at London School of Hygiene, you know, he works very, very closely with WHO and, and European partners. And he was just saying it was just extraordinary to see how little attention was paid to what was happening internationally, this kind of British mm. exceptionalism. And I think we've never lost that. Even today, there's this kind of assumption that where we are is inevitable. And you're like, but but literally across the water, <laughs> they've got, they just don't have that much COVID. And it's, and it's this kind of weird idea that somehow we've got nothing to learn from anyone else. And and that that is quite odd to me. And, and somehow it kind of seeped into the, I think into the science advice yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean it's kind of unbearable. You go to Italy, you go to France, and it's just a whole, it's like a different world at the moment. But on the other hand, so obviously there were scientists who got things badly wrong, and and you know let's not even go into the Sinetra Gupta's et al. from um, uh, advising, you know, whispering into Rishi Sunak's ear, and uh, frankly um, helping ensure that a few more tens of thousands of people. Uh, won't see another day on this planet. But um, I suppose one thing we can say has come out of it is that we had a serious post-Brexit or in the year or two leading up to Brexit and since then, a very strong anti-expert um, thread running through our society and uh, anti-facts as well. Um, but we have seen that that leads to death, basically. Do you feel that this might be part of a tide turning against that anti-science anti-expert mentality oh, is, i don't think we i don't think we did have an anti-expert thing running through society i think we had that in our politics and that that you know particularly um on the right that was that was how they made the case for leave but i don't think in general that the public felt that way i don't think if you look at that, you know, the, the trust scores for scientists and, and doctors have stayed really high throughout. And, you know, and once COVID started, mm. you know, the appetite for understanding about the science was insatiable. Mm. Now, that's where I think there is a problem with people like Sinetra Gupta um, and the Great Barrington Declaration is, is that there is a small group of experts, and they are a small group of experts who hold completely different views who've had a lot of prominence and, and it is very similar to the climate change debates and actually also similar to some of the tobacco debates um, where they're kind of held up as these equal camps and they're yes. not. But if you're a member of the public, how do you judge that? Um, because she is an eminent academic, you know, and, and, and that, and that is, that is really difficult. And, and, and there has been, you know, so many articles published on COVID and a lot of it was done on preprint which is fair enough because, you know, it's important to get information out quickly. And normally it might take six months to a year to get a paper published, you know, which is just too long in a pandemic. But it also means that a lot of bad science gets published, mm. both on preprints and actually some through peer review because everything was in a rush in a way. Um, and that means that there are genuinely peer-reviewed articles that are diametrically opposite conclusions. And it means you can always find something that agrees with you. And that's really difficult because unless you're actually prepared to go and read the papers and you know enough to judge them, mm. then then how do you know what to believe? And I think that is a genuine problem and I don't know what the answer is. Mm. And, and particularly hard when broadcasters feel the need to uh, offer so-called balance when when in fact one group represents five percent of 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 you know sort of opin expert opinion and the other group represents ninety five percent but they give sort of fifty fifty well, when particularly when when some of them are on stage you know like Robert Dingwall um, you know what then 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 I can't blame someone for listening to him over me because he has you know he has that scientific credential he's literally on the scientific advisory group you mm -hmm. know but he's still in the majority yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, but uh, yeah but how do you how do you balance that as a journalist I, I mean I, I don't know no um I want to move off Covid shortly but as we've said we do currently or as we've intimated we do currently have one of the highest infection rates 
in the world. The government has dropped all restrictions, doesn't wear masks, doesn't encourage anyone else to wear masks in indoor spaces, chastises civil servants for not going back to the office. And a lot of people seem to be living life pretty much as normal, assuming it's all gone away. Long COVID, which you've talked about a lot, hasn't gone away. The risk is reduced, but not eliminated by the virus. How normal is your life at the moment? And what risks, if any, are you choosing to take? Well, my life isn't normal at all. And um, and it's not actually true that the government doesn't advise you to wear masks. It does. If you go on the official... Yeah, but no, but the actual guidance, government doesn't. I mean, no, they're, they're... No, no. <laughs> the actual guidance is to wear masks inside. Um, and, and it's not just that the, the government ministers are not doing it. They're also saying things like, wear a mask if you're with someone you don't know. And I'm like, which, which, which is nonsense, right? There's no science behind it. And in fact, you're more likely to get COVID from someone you do know, because that's who you're talking to and spending the evening with. I mean, it's just, anyway. I mean, household transmission is the primary way people get COVID. Um, so my life, I'm probably living under tier two <laughs> level two in that so my husband and I like we're both we've both been very fortunate in that we have been able to work from home and um, we are starting to go into the office now but we will cycle to the office trying to avoid public transport um we don't go into indoor places really I mean we'll go around to friends for dinner and have people around here to our house and and that's as far as it goes right now um but yeah it sucks you know like I I miss it I miss my life (laughs) I want to be able to go back out and enjoy London um but we did we did try I went to the cinema about a month ago and um it was really full and we were literally the only people wearing masks and everyone was staring at us and it does make you feel really uncomfortable um so we haven't gone back I've been too scared. No, I've been too scared. We're not scared. I mean, I've been too aware of the risks to do any of that cinema theatre. Yeah. It, it, it is long COVID that's putting me off. Like, me I actually too. don't think, you know, I've been vaccinated. I'm not that old. Like, I, like, I'm sure I'll be fine in the short term. Like, I don't think I'll need hospital or anything, though you never know. Um, but even if it's 10%, risk of getting long COVID that's not what like it's not worth it to me it yeah. just isn't worth it and my I, husband says the same thing and he's like you know I cannot afford brain fog in my job I just exactly. cannot afford to do it um and given that we're in a position to lead a life where we can um, manage our risk you know we don't have children and I think mm. if I had children I might have a different risk appetite because mm. in some sense a lot of it is out of your control anyway yeah. um then then we are it's just sometimes it feels like for how long? <laughs> so to go back to where this all started, when did you first decide that science was the path you were going to take? Um, probably when I was 14. <laughs> Very specific, 13 or 14. Um, and it wasn't school. It was my brother. Yeah, definitely. Like He, he was eight years older than me. Um, and so he went to university when I was 12. Um, and no, God, it must have been 10. Yeah, must have been 10. And he studied maths and computing. Um, and he would just tell me these really cool things about mathematics and physics. And um, I remember he he told me, you know, the e to the i pi equals minus one. And it just kind of blew my mind. You know, that I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, how can that happen? Um, and then I started reading a lot of popular science books, like at the time, like cosmology and black holes and brief history of time, you know, Stephen Hawking and um, chaos when that came out. And I just loved it. And I was just like, this is amazing. Like physics is amazing. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's what happened. And, and I carried on with that. And I always, I always loved history and English as well. But I knew, I guess I don't know quite how I knew, but I did know at 16 that, you know, you have to pick it, you know, once I go down the humanities route, I can't go back. Whereas I could go back to humanities from the science route, which I have done, um, because it's just not that kind of linear progression that you have in the sciences. 
So for the benefit of listeners, I'm going to read out your academic CV, which is 11 GCSEs, four A-levels, an MSc in quantum theory, a PhD in space physics, an MSc in applied statistics, and two master's degrees in history. I'm surprised you haven't had to check yourself into the priory as a, as a kind of <laughs> exam addict. What, what made you do all of that? Well, the history degrees didn't have exams. Oh, right. So okay. that, that, <laughs> that was, um, well, I did the first one, which was an MA. Okay, no. So I, I did my undergrad in maths and I always wanted to do physics and I finished that and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I did an MSc in quantum theory, which is what all the popular science books was that I, I read as a child. And I, I loved it. Like, it was really good. Um, but... Also, it turns out that the bits of quantum theory I really liked have been solved by Feynman. And so they're like, well, you have to do quantum field theory, which was really hard. And I was just like, no, no, that's not, I'm not going to do that. So then I went and I did an MA in classical civilization because I'd always loved ancient Rome. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I did a degree purely for myself. You know, I did it part time. So I was doing, I was working during the day. And it was, and it's a completely different feeling to learn things purely because you, you want to know and you're interested and not because you have to. It's just a completely, it, mm. it, I can't explain quite how different that feels. And it was amazing. And, and, it, and, it, and it's the way that, you know, having the structure of a degree, like I'm not somebody who can force themselves to work without some kind of someone telling me I have to, basically, mm. you know. Um, and so, you know, being told, I read this book, read that book, and, um, and then you have to write an essay, and, and the writing of an essay is a way of making you understand it, like you think you've understood something, and then you write an essay, and you actually have to formulate what you think about it, and, mm. and I just found that really satisfying, um, and it just opened my mind to things that I'd never considered about how much of our culture is, is, is learned and not innate, you know, mm. things, even things about, like, sexuality and how we define sexuality and how different it was in the ancient world just concepts I'd never considered um concepts about religion about you know it was just it was just so interesting and then I always wanted to do more so my other one was in medieval history which I did in 2008 and again that was just fascinating like I did a whole essay on the women's wills in the 10th century in England and what you could infer about their lives from the wills that they made and it was just it, yeah I, I loved it I absolutely loved it and I still want to do more it's just I haven't got any time, <laughs> sure. I, time. I've got some I have but there's definitely that there's at least one more in my future maybe two depending on if my husband lets me <laughs> <laughs> and how would you say I mean clearly you have exceptional communication skills and one could argue that any study of the humanities might help with that but how else would you say it has informed your career and your work that the, that study of history I'm not sure I'm not sure it has directly um I think it's mean that I've always been really open to the expertise of others mm. for sure and and an appreciation of 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 how your whole view of something can change if someone just points something out to you in a different way so that I think has been really clear to me from the beginning mm. um but yeah I don't know I mean directly I don't think it does I mean obviously you know you have to write but every academic has to write you mm. know if you want to write papers and grants and stuff um I've but never, they don't, I've, but they I've don't have to write well though do they <laughs> I mean, you know, well, I mean, they have to be good I mean they, they they don't have to write clearly is 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 my point they have to be very good at their discipline and some and some academics can write it's, it goes back to what you were saying about jargon earlier some academics are very good at writing in ways that are comprehensible beyond the academic yeah. world and others others less so well that's true but I definitely think some academics do that on purpose I think some some academics think that, that the less understandable they are to the layperson, the cleverer they are, oh, <laughs> which isn't which isn't something that I subscribe to. No, I think, and, it, I uh, think the and it's, it's interesting. I, I get that a lot on Twitter, actually. People telling me that what I do is too easy and um, and that I, I should be using much more complicated graphs. I'm like, but if people don't understand, like, what is the point? You know, I want people to actually get something out of what I'm doing, <laughs> and if I 
do this fancy chart then and no one understands it then so then how does that help anyone you know and so we just have very different views on things absolutely yeah so you use maths in a very practical way to help doctors and improve healthcare, and particularly in relation to cardiac surgery and and its outcomes can you say a bit more about what exactly you do to do that yeah, so it's basically all about congenital heart surgery. So it's a bit different from um, the kind of surgery you typically have as an adult, if it's like, you know, which is a heart bypass or, or that kind of thing. So it's heart defects that we're born with, of which there are very many. Um, and and mostly, um, if you're born with it, you will need an operation in the first few years of your life. But then you often need more operations as life goes on and potentially even as an adult. Um, and so really the whole field went kind of progressed massively in the eighties and nineties from actually having really high mortality rates to really low mortality rates. And then became this idea, well, how do we actually know how we're doing? What should we be measuring to understand how the service is doing and what actually matters? Because it's not just, are you in hospital after a week? Because it's a lifelong disease and so you know it's things like potentially how often do you need to go to hospital um how's your quality of life outside hospital what kind of complications are you left with um what happens to you in five years time and no one had ever really looked at that and looking at it needs quite good mathematics but it also needs you to kind of um talk to uh be able to understand the viewpoint of clinicians and clinical teams and also patients and parents and and try and marry those things together so that's kind of what what we try to do and you're not just doing the research and all that work but you're also running the clinical operational research unit at ucl the first woman director ever do you like being a boss no not really (laughs) (laughs) why not (laughs) I mean, I mean, because, you know, effectively what I do now in my job is a lot of project management. So I don't do very much primary mm. research anymore. And I think every academic goes through that phase at one point or other. And it's quite hard. It's quite hard to let go of yourself, this idea that you're the hands-on scientist. And some scientists do do that throughout the whole career and they get more and more expert in a certain thing. And then, and then others tend to go more down the project management route where you end up with quite a big team and then it's the team that's doing it um so so that yeah I kind of I kind of miss that the kind of sciencey bit of my life Mm. um and there's a lot of just bureaucracy that you have Mm. to deal with and budgets and fire safety and all of that stuff which is not (laughs) which I just don't find particularly motivating no how I mean Um, most jobs have a fair bit of bollocks thrown in don't they How, how do you cope with the bollocks how do you manage them well um I've now got a really nice team <laughs> and a really good team and some Do really delegate good... the products <laughs> yeah well unfortunately a lot of it can't be delegated yeah. but like I've got like a really good kind of finance and research managers who help me enormously particularly during COVID when I've kind of been like guys you're just gonna have to sort it out on your own and and, mm. and they've been they've been amazing um but also, you know, that, you know, you have to then take, well, the, there are two things. Firstly, the good thing is that I get to choose what projects we do and what projects I do. So it is, so in that sense, you get to shape what gets done. Mm. And that's, that's a nice thing. Like, I'm not going to lie. That's a nice thing. And you have a lot of freedom as well, which a lot of people don't have in their job. Like no one tells me what to do every day. So that's Great. Nice. That's, that's a huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, I don't, I don't mind being told what to do, but I have to, I have to respect the person who's doing it. Yes. And you can't always guarantee that. Um, and then the other thing is, is that I hate asking people to do things if I'm not prepared to do them. Mm. So if, if there's a rubbish job and then I'm like, well, why should, why should they do it and not me? So, so when I think of it that way, I'll kind of just do it. And I'm actually, I'm actually quite organized as a person. So I'm actually quite good at that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And what do you like most? about your work well that's a that's a hard question to answer because right now um it is like it is quite difficult just because because of independence age you know that Mm. adds three days onto my week oh my god every week that I was already working six days a week so so it just means that at the moment I feel like I'm doing everything badly 
And no, no, that's not enjoyable. Everything's by the seat of your pants. Um, so, so right now, it's very much kind of, I'll just keep going. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's, I, I'm sure it's absolutely not true. I mean, certainly everything public facing, you're doing absolutely brilliantly and I imagine as someone with about 100 degrees that your standards are unbelievably high but um but it's a horrible feeling that is certainly true um so and clearly not much downtime at the moment but you run what what when you do have downtime you've talked about I've read about you traveling and going on amazing trips not least with your with your late brother what else do you do to relax how or at least how do you decompress from work well, I mean, a lot of it is is um, exercise, but my husband and I, like, we love going to the outdoors. Like, we love London, absolutely love the buzz of the city and and just the energy and diversity and the history. I just love it. But at weekends and holidays, we go out into the wilderness, wherever that may be, you know, mm. hiking, canoeing, kayaking, running, mountain biking. Wow. You know, that's what camping, you know, that, that's what, we love and kind of backcountry camping particularly um and then the national parks in this in america is really set up for backcountry camping in a way that it isn't here and it's just there's nothing like it you know so so yeah that's what we do adventure stuff i'm not really into beach holidays or reading you know i like I, I'm, I'm really bad like if you go on a holiday with me do not expect to have a particularly relaxing time i get quite stressed about it I'm like, I'm gonna die soon you know we're not gonna die soon but I kind of feel like I don't want to waste a single day of my holiday I have to I have to have done something that I couldn't normally do basically is, is how I see it interesting and and I wanted to ask you my sister died your brother died when he was I think 39 my sister died when she was 41 and I lost my brother a couple of years ago and I mean, that was such an incredibly moving thread, beautifully, well, I was going to say beautifully written, but it was mostly a you know, qu- quoted conversation between you and your brother, which was just very funny and moving. Has that changed your attitude? Has his death changed your attitude to life and work? Um, I'm not sure it's changed my attitude to work. It's definitely... To change my attitude like I mean I mean he died in a, in a motorbike accident and it was like you're you know a classic not a classic but the kind of casualty moment of, of police knocking on your door at 2am because I was actually staying with my parents at the time um you know saying he's died and and you know there's that feeling which I'm sure you know that feeling of something you know everything has changed from one moment to the next um and I'm not sure that yeah so it never goes back to where it was before um it's definitely made me want to not waste time. Mm. Um, but also, it, I mean, in some ways, it has made me more risk averse, particularly while my parents are alive. Like, I feel a lot of responsibility to them not to die. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> because they've lost one child and I just couldn't do it to them to lose another child. So in that sense, in, in some ways, I've become a bit less carpe diem, you know, because of that, mm. even though we still do lots of things. Um, but I mean, I think I think with my brother, what made it a bit easier f- to kind of deal with it is that literally like the week, like the Sunday before he died, I died on a Wednesday and the Sunday before we'd had a big family meal, you know, a big Sunday lunch. And it was a really lovely day. We all get on with each other, you know, and, and my brother was happy. He liked his job. He was actually very religious and I'm not at all, but, you know, he loved his church and we all got on as a family that's amazing we talk about a church and the bells ring <laughs> no that's a, oh that's a, your clock and it's okay my husband's going right. um but but so you kind of you know when he died I kind of felt like well I guess there are no regrets I mean obviously I regret that I didn't get to see what happened to him and vice versa um but um but I, you know, I know that we ended on good terms and that he was happy and he wasn't always happy. So I think that, you know, so I think that to me is, is the aim that when you die, you die knowing that you're living a life that you're happy with and you're proud of. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was very funny as well, that exchange, very funny. And 
I wondered how important humor. I mean, it really came across, and I wondered how important humor was in in your life, or is in your life. <laughs> well, very, very important. Like, like you know, like after my brother died, um, and I remember I called one of my best friends, Dan, like the day after, and he was kind of joking about it, but in a which was which was exactly what I needed. Mm. You know, that's that's how I tend to deal with things, you know, and I felt like, you know, if you can't make a joke about some of the almost awful moments, then, then that, that is really important to me. And, you know, my brother and my sister were, were and are both extremely funny people, much funnier than me. And, and, you know, that kind of banter was part of our, our relationship. And one of the reasons I did that thread is that, is that when he died for his funeral, I kind of made a much longer version and we, I printed it out because it's like back, you know, pre-social media times. Yeah. Um, and I found it again on my computer and I was reading through it. And um, it was obviously like we we're just about to have lockdown. And I was just thinking, you know, this, this to me is a truer way of explaining your relationship with someone than standing up and doing some kind of eulogy where you whitewash people and airbrush them and everyone was amazing and blah, blah, blah. And like, well, that isn't, people aren't like that, right? Yeah. People are the relationships that they have. And, and that's what I wanted to show because I actually think from reading that, you'd know, you probably know more about him than, than most people. And that's what I wanted to yeah. get. Well, it was, it, it, you, you did that beautifully. Uh, and it made me think about how, how important it is to well banter really. And I, I, as a freelance journalist I've worked from home for some years but before that I always loved being in an office and I, I ran an arts organization some years ago and we were constantly breaking off for drinks having margaritas on the roof um I would anytime we got a funding application successful I'd nip out and get bottles of carver and kettle chips you know we had a laugh and one of the things people have talked about a lot over the last 18 months is the kind of working from home versus working in the office in normal times do you have fun at work well yeah <laughs> I mean I mean but that that also is where being a boss is less fun because you can't <laughs> because because people don't react to you necessarily that way so you know I re- I kind of realized actually it's better for them to go to the pub without me there do you want to it, like oh well I was I was clearly the boss from hell because I did go to the pub well, you know, I don't know I kind of you, you want people to be able to let their hair down and not worry about what you're thinking or, um, so, I mean, obviously I do go cause I'm quite sociable and a lot of my positions are quite introverted. So I'm definitely one of the more extroverted people in my team. Mm. So like if I'm not there, sometimes it can be a bit quiet, but, um, but it is fun, you know, so like, like before, before lockdown, like before COVID, we just started, um, kind of weekly games and I bought all these games for work like Pictionary and Articulate and stuff mm. and we were playing those and that was just a really fun way oh, great. of kind of chatting about stuff and then mm. obviously COVID happened um, and then we kind of tried various online games which worked up to a point but it's just not quite it's not quite the same mm. you know I think that's what you lose and now we're kind of going back a couple of days a week um, and I'm seeing kind of people and that and then you realize that that kind of kind of casual joke you might do that you would never call someone up for. No, That's exactly. Missed by the face to face. You know, or like you might have a conversation with annoying collaborator, and then you go and you have a, a quick two minute bitch about it, and then you feel much better. Like, you wouldn't do that remotely. And I wouldn't call someone. Goes, you'll never guess the Zoom call I just had. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You you've talked about. Um, I think in one questionnaire you were asked what you what you might do if you weren't doing what you were doing now, and you mentioned. Uh, possibly being a doctor or a politician do you think you might pursue do something different at some point yeah definitely (laughs) I mean yeah for sure like you know I'm 45 about to turn 46 let's say I've got 20 years of working life left I mean I don't want to be doing what I'm doing now for 20 years I've been doing it for you know 10-15 years like there's I'm interested in a lot of different things um, and, and, you know, I'm more and more interested in actually just making things happen and mm. having an impact. And, um, and there's a limit to how much you can do that in academia, you mm. know, like, I'm like, I'm the kind of science I do, I'm not going to find a cure for cancer. I'm not going to, 
find the next exoplanet. I'm not doing that fundamental science, which I love, but isn't isn't where I've ended up. Um, so it's kind of, what do I do? You know, and I have I have thought about politics, but the truth is, I'm not very good at towing the line. Yeah, and 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 I wouldn't, I I couldn't, I don't think go on TV and support a position I didn't believe in. And and that and that is that would be difficult to me. And and I'm just not somebody who believes that one party has everything right and the other party has everything wrong. Even though I am a member of a party, you know, that's that's not how I see things. And I'm not a very active member for that reason. Mm. Um and I I much prefer the kind of European compromise way of doing politics. Yeah. So, so I, I, yeah, I don't think my political ambitions are going to go anywhere. And I, and the thing is, like, I am very sociable and I, and I love talking to people and I love communicating, but I'm also, I don't particularly enjoy small talk and I don't particularly like talking to strangers about stuff. So the canvassing side of politics, I think I'd be absolutely terrible at. I'm just and laughing. I'm just laughing because I'm. I have to say exactly. Snap on every single point. I did talk about going into politics, but I couldn't toe the line. And don't can't subscribe to any party at the moment. Though I am a member of one. I imagine we're a member of the same one. But even so, hugely critically in my case, and clearly in yours, and canvassing clearly an absolute nightmare. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, give me a safe seat and say, tell me that I don't have to always tell you what say what you think I should say. Fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Give us, give us, exactly. Give us both a safe seat. I, I know you've got to go now, so um, I, I will let you go, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Christina. Okay. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you too. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this conversation, do subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and do share, rate it and or leave a review. For tips, wisdom and advice about The Art of Work, do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. And do join me next week.